0: Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the Accidental Gods project, this podcast, the website, and the membership program that arises from it. We spent the second series finding people who are using these tools in ways that could inspire us to change, so that if we want to go on this path, we had an idea of what was possible. And that still obtains in the third season. We are still looking at the people walking this path. But on top of that, I want to begin to lay out a vision for the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. If we can feel forward to where we need to go, If we can build for ourselves a felt sense of how it might be, we stand a better chance of getting there. With that in mind, my guest this week is a remarkable woman of astonishing creativity, talent and unmatched connectedness to the land. Carolyn Hillier lives on a thousand-year-old farm in the heart of Dartmoor in Devon, where she and her partner, the musician Nigel Shaw, have created a sanctuary, a genuinely sacred place that feels to me like nowhere else I have ever been on earth. There is such a powerful sense of the sacred there and of a deep, deep connection to the land and to the ancestors who walked the land. There's a sense of tribe, of connectedness to the potential of who we could be. As you'll hear, Carolyn is an artist and musician and i really encourage you to head for her website at Seventh Wave Music to listen to the beauty of her music and her songs and see some of her artwork. Carolyn leads ceremonies and ceremonial workshops. She weaves the ancient languages of this land into music that melts my bones. And she takes care of a herd of wild ponies on Dartmoor in a way that shows us how our relationship with the more-than-human world can be generative and beautiful. So, people of the podcast, please welcome Carolyn Hillier. Welcome, Carolyn Hillier, to the Accidental Gods podcast. You were on my very first list when I first drew up a list of people I would most like to have come on, so it's such an honour to have you here. And it sounds as if you're in the midst of a glorious Devon summer down there with the birds really loud outside the window. How has it been in lockdown and now at the end of lockdown for you?
1: Thank you, Manda. It's wonderful to be here with you. And I know we've been waiting to do this conversation for a a few months now. So it's great to be having this chance. Um, Yes, I'm sitting on our farm, which is in the middle of Dartmoor. Uh, We have been here um, locked down really since um, the beginning of January because actually the pattern of our year is that we go into hibernation for three months uh, once New Year mm. is with us and we literally s- slipped from hibernation into lockdown without breaking strides really. So I haven't really put my foot beyond the gate for quite a long time. Um, it actually changed for us, became more busy because we Um, had four young people come to live with us during lockdown so we went from quite an isolated place into having a small community and that has been a, a rich and wonderful experience.
0: Is it the sort of thing do you think you'll carry on?
1: Well it's interesting because we have been here now for 25 years and last year uh, my partner and I spent a lot of time talking about how we could enable greater access for young people to the land here. How could we we mm. could make it possible for them to come to do their own work, workshops, retreats, work on the land, whatever it was. And then, of course, um, in the last few months, we've been experiencing a little of what mm. that actually feels like, and and the energy and the dynamic of that has been phenomenal. Interesting.
0: Yes. So let's tell me a little bit about, tell us and the listeners a bit about the land that you're on, because I've visited, but pretty much everybody listening probably hasn't and may not have a chance to. So describe your farm, because it's so beautiful.
1: Well, we came here 25 years ago, and we had been on our way to Dartmoor individually for a very long time before that. So our paths linked up en route and we did these last uh, steps of the journey together. Uh, We found this farm by chance, but we weren't in a position at that point to take it on. So we went away, um, had a baby, came back. And nine months later, <laughs> the farm was still here. And it was at a point in time, a very unusual and strange point in time when nobody was really wanting to buy farms on Dartmoor. And uh, yeah. we were uh, embraced really by the people who were living here who needed to move because they couldn't handle the winters. And uh, they saw us mm-hmm. walking up the track with our little family and decided that they would do whatever they could to make it possible for us to come here. So it was quite an extraordinary and magical encounter. Uh, So we took the farm on from them and we have made it our commitment um, to enable people to come to the land as much as possible. We try to open it up in many different ways. It feels like our guardianship is dependent on our generosity in sharing it.
0: Hmm. And because I first met you in person at a a very large gathering and it was the last of I think seven years of gatherings. So you, you have opened the land up a lot and at that time we were working in a roundhouse that you had built. So for people listening, Carolyn's farm is right on the edge of Dartmoor. I imagine the winters are quite impressively bleak and cold and you probably get stuck there for several weeks, if not months, in normal pre, pre-climate change winters. But then you open it up in the spring and and many, many people arrive and hold ceremony on your land. Can you tell us a bit about the, the kinds of ceremony and the ways that you help to connect people to the land that you're on?
1: Yes. Well, we're actually in the right in the heart of Dartmoor, in the belly of the moor. It's a place called the High Bowl of the Moor. So whichever direction you come from, you're heading over the high hills and then into this dip in, in the middle of the moor. That's where we are. And it is actually situated on the edge of a massive ritual landscape that spreads west and north from where our farm is, all across the open wild moor, where obviously nobody lives apart from the ancestors spirits and we have used this location really to draw in as much as we are able of the wild and ancient energy of the moors around into the farm to infuse that into the farm so that we create um, over time we have managed to uh, create a, a wild sanctuary on this place and develop Um, a richer landscape here which people can come and work with in a very focused way so we have um, many different ecosystems within the farm it's not a huge farm it's it's not a great number of acres it's a it's a small traditional uh, Dartmoor Hill farm it's it's over a thousand years old the farmstead itself but when we came we Uh, the first thing was to plant a lot of trees. So we have planted thousands of trees in this uh, area Mm. of land and worked with the different ecosystems to really protect and enhance them. And then within that, we have, as as you mentioned, created a a ceremonial ancestor house, a Neolithic-style roundhouse, which is really the, the heart of all the ritual work that is carried on here. So everybody who comes in whatever form they come to make ceremony or participate in workshops events the roundhouses within their journey and then from there over the the the, the more recent years we have uh created a, a stone row and we have embedded a a kissed fen, a mm. granite tomb on the land to hold the dynamic of the bronze age ancestor women uh we've created a a, a sacred stream area and uh, and many shrines and the shrines change all the time. So at the moment we have a wild horse shrine, we have a shide which is a, a a different kind of connecting ancient form of form of shrine and that's being held by bear bear bones which were put there by our Arctic
0: friends. The bear bones. So the bear bones are not uh, bear bones from your land that from the very ancient bears of Britain. These are modern bear bones that have come from another land.
1: Yes, we, we had a, uh, probably about 13 years ago, some friends came from Arctic Sweden, Sami women, and they wanted to place bear bones into the land, that which are forest bears from from where they are right. in the tiger forest, um, and, and put them into our ancestor shrine. So they created a ceremony there and we've worked with bear energy ever since in that particular shrine and, and obviously anchored into that the ancestral remembrance of bear in our own landscape.
0: Can you tell me more about how it feels to work with returning the bear energy to the land there? Has it affected your dreaming?
1: Well, yes, it has. The journey we've taken is to consistently aim to deepen the the memory of the land um, and be able to bring that in a way that people can actually it so for us um, moving back into ancestral memory and and gathering that forward into our contemporary experience of life has been very key the bear um, has been uh, very significant um, in terms of the work we've done around the bronze age ancestry here because you probably have heard of white horse hill woman who is a bronze age ancestor discovered on dartmoor just about 10 years ago her remains were recovered and it was it was found that she had been wrapped in bear skin and this was hugely important because it brought Mm. into our actual location on the moor here an ancestor who had been held by bear spirit as she moved into her next journey and that felt very important for the the whole uh, dynamic of how we were working.
0: And did the Sami women know this? Is this why they brought the bear bones with them, or did they dream into the bear and it wanted to come?
1: That was before that was before the bear. So that they they, they they brought the bear bones and put them on our land before we knew about the white horse Hill one land.
0: Oh, isn't that interesting. Wow, because at the time I was with you, you were just building the the kist, the Bronze Age burial mound, mm. and that was related to White Horse Hill Woman as well if I remember right. That's right yes so th-
1: this was in um, 2014 and we created a, a big festival which you were w- with us for and over three days and three nights we created ceremony as we symbolically returned White Horse Hill Woman in bone form into the kist. Uh, we felt it was important to do it at that point because she had been gathered up and uh, spread around Europe into various scientific laboratories and museum archives and we felt we needed to gather her into an mm. essence and return her into the land and uh, we we placed her in there in the form of wild horse bones actually.
0: yes thank you yes and I remember the ceremonies and I remember one of those things that has always people ask how do you know that this is real? and you know because the land speaks back and i remember we were in a very large yurt tent i think doing ceremony with many many people from many different backgrounds and cultures and our small groups that had been working together were working with the earth and we did the bit of ceremony that we had arranged And it was very much about connecting into the earth. And I felt this quality of the silence behind me. And I turned around and three of our group were looking at the ground with that look on their faces of this really can't be happening. And a mole (laughs) had emerged from the earth right in the center of the little area that we were holding. And it just kind of looked around at all of us and turned around and went back into the earth again. And it was such an affirmation of, of the groundedness. Of what we were doing. And the 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 earth was speaking back and it felt even now it feels very moving to remember it. Um and it gave such power to what we were doing. So what have you done with the with that burial area since you we brought the essence of the ancient woman back to it?
1: Well, we have been working with it all the time Uh, the following year actually we had a very big women's festival here on the land and we opened up the kist uh, again Mm -hmm. so that so that the women could also and they were women from many different cultures and lands and that is very important um, that, that we are constantly weaving ourselves into other forms of prayer and other forms of relationship with the earth by connecting and sharing with you know our fellow kindred human beings in, in other cultures and landscapes. But in order to do that we have to be strong in our own roots. And this is why we have felt over this time, you know my all my work with women has has got three main uh, chords within it, which is our relationship to the sacred wildland. Our relationship with our ancestry because unless we can deeply root we're not solid yeah. in the work that we do as we move forward and then finally our sense of community in sisterhood because that's where we draw strength and support from and then it's ex- expanding from that of course into our wider communities so this sense of us having uh, a true and authentic real understanding of our root um, that, that drives drives all the work that that i do here that's mm. what took me initially to the north because i felt i needed to do a geographical journey in order to make my chronological journey down into a memory of this landscape so i needed to be on ice in the way that ice was right on our islands right um, and that that's why i started going north and then continue to do that ever since
0: And can you tell us a little bit about your experiences in the north, things that are okay to share?
1: Yes, of course. I started um, by dipping into the Arctic region where the Sami people are in northern Sweden. We have established a relationship with some beautiful community of friends there. And uh, we have gone quite a few times to perform um, music and and, uh, also offer workshops at um, Reindeer Festival there that is take takes place every winter. Mm. Then it felt like there was more more journey to to make. So um, sometime a few years after that, we began to step into Russia, and again it was done what? with invitation to indigenous gatherings in order to present music. So by that point, we understood we needed to go uh, carrying strong aspects of our own culture in order to be able to weave into what was happening at the reindeer festivals so we used the fact that we are Dartmoor pony herders of we have a wild pony herd on the moor, and the culture of that which is so old in this landscape and uh, we had obviously been working in a very practical way with our herd for for decades Mm. so we we went with that culture embedded in in, in our ourselves as musicians so i wore you know uh, wild horse leather belts that we'd made from the, the you know the, the ponies that had gone and we took drums horse drums that were made from from these same herds um so we we went with our Dartmoor hill mm. pony culture in order to be able to stand there with the reindeer culture and it, it was a beautiful way of being able to travel and participate in a nomadic gathering and be part of that journey and place our own ancient indigenous within that
0: brilliant and is this something leaving aside coronavirus and not traveling now is this something that will continue it sounds like it must well
1: <laughs> we we had a plan to go back to siberia next february but i think we're probably going to delay that or, or look at it again because Although geographically, it's not the furthest I've ever been from home, in terms of how it feels inside, to be travelling in Siberia, especially that far northern edge, it, it feels like the furthest you could ever be mm. <laughs> from your. Yes. Own, just the, the the length of time it takes to get there, and the complexity of the travel, and the permissions, oh. and you know all the it <laughs> so takes yeah. a, a long, long time to organise. Um, so we were just thinking maybe we don't want to be sort of going out so far at the moment. We're, we'll just stay yeah. close in and see how the world unfolds.
0: Yeah, and build the community that you're building. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On your land. So So I would like to look a bit more about the world unfolding, but I would like before we do that to go back to the wild horse shrine and you're working with the horses on your land. Because that has always seemed to me one of the, it's incredibly grounding and grounded and so full of compassion and heart. And I've just had a fall. So horses are completely, not obviously physically given birth to a foal, but there is a foal on our land. So the the ways of interacting with the wild horses on your land, can you talk more about that?
1: Yes, well, the horse shrine that we have on our land is created around four skulls of wild ponies who've had wild deaths on the moor. And this is one of the extraordinary experiences of being in the middle of Dartmoor that that death is very present as part of the experience of being on the land so yes. they 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 go uh, you know up into the remote places over the winter and, and some of them don't survive or maybe some of them don't survive some of the mares don't make it through falling and they're just doing their experience in the in the wild place and nobody's coming mm. and tidying their bodies away they they're there and it's yeah. part of the journey of being uh, on on the moor and and when you find these ponies it, it is like finding a wild shrine that has been laid there for you to um, receive from so you know from time to time we bring them back and we uh, have, have them then as part of what is happening here but in terms of our our own herd uh, we started that probably about 23 years ago uh, we were given an orphaned foal from the top of the moor that would normally have been shot because she had no one to care for her but they decided they would bring it to us instead and said start your herd so we did and she was our matriarch for many years we we had her with us um on the farm for four years and then she needed really to start to interact with the herds um up on the you know that were up on the, the open hills so we took her up there and she had a difficult first winter but then began to uh recover her wildlife and started her own family of ponies, sons and daughters and because we never separated them out as happens for a lot of the ponies, she built up quite a strong tribe and therefore mm. became a bit of a ma- you know big matriarch up there because uh, she had her sons and that made all the difference. She had a lot of clout. <laughs>
0: But you gelded them, I believe. That's so, right. Yeah. Do I remember right?
1: We gelded the yeah. boys so they could stay on the moor. Um, yeah. so that the, the control of stallions is is something that's nothing to do to do with us. Other yeah. farmers are involved in that, but we don't get involved in that. So we we geld the boys and we we um we keep as many of the the girls as we can. But we have to you know bring some of them down to the farm so we don't increase our herd
0: size too too rapidly. Right. Right. And I remember you telling me the story of her death. Do you feel mm. able to share that?
1: I'd love to share that. Yeah, absolutely. I cry
0: every time. But
1: it's <laughs> so nice. we, our, our whole approach is a very personal one. Uh, it, it is different from the way that most Dartmoor pony herders are, are using their way of being with their herds. So we've always wanted to, to keep everything as wild and, and as true as we can and have a very intimate relationship with the ponies, but on their terms. And uh, we, we had been really working in that way with this mare for a long time. And she'd gone through you know, many foals over the years. Uh, we were away doing some concerts one time and we believe that she got hit by a car while she was just mm-hmm. about to foal. So she had Stumbled off the road and gone into labour, and our daughter had been out looking for her and found her. And we you know, all went to where she was, and by then she was in a lot of trouble. Um, and we worked with her for sixteen hours on on the hill there to try and get her up. The foal was dead; we had to pull pull the foal out, but she was really struggling. And all the time that was happening, her heard of her sons and daughters were gathered around her while we were trying to get her on her feet again. And then we realized that this wasn't going to work, that she, she was on her way out really. So we went to get our old tractor and a, a load of a box at the back. And we managed with the help of neighbors to roll her into it. She was you know, still struggling on there, still connecting with the ponies that were around her. And then we started to drive very slowly down the hill towards where our farm is. And the oldest son uh, brought the rest of the herd behind as she was going down, followed her down. I mean, it was nothing to do with us calling them in or anything. They just chose to do that. So as we walked very slowly with her, she was calling out to them. And and the oldest uh, son was bringing the rest of the siblings down behind And then he stopped, wouldn't let them go any further. We carried on down into the valley. And just at that moment, he and another of the gelding sons just let out this huge call to her and rose up. He rose up on his feet and she called out back and then he took everyone off galloping across the moor. And it was the most extraordinary send-off. They were all entirely aware of what was happening and she was aware that, you know, this was... A completion of something. We we just witnessed it and were in mm-hmm. awe.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it makes me cry every time I hear that. And it it leads me, this is a this is a sidetrack we won't go down much, but because I'm now so much more involved in ponies again here and seeing the ways that we treat them in standard horse terms standard human-horse interactions, and then really becoming involved with the ways that we can connect with them and they connect with each other. We routinely break up family groups mm-hmm. without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I think for people to hear that and to understand the extent to which family matters to all of the species around us is is huge. So thank you for that. So, from that, and your Wild Horse Shrine, I would like to begin to look forward to how things could be, because it seems to me you have created the healthiest model that I have ever come across, of that triad that you speak of, of the healthy connection to ancestry that feels to me, it doesn't deny the wounding of all that has gone before us at all, but it connects back to a time when, if not unwounded, it feels to me that the ancestral links are healthier, they're whole. There were a time when we were genuinely living in context with the land, and there is so much for us to learn from that sense of being whole. And yet, you're looking forward rather than becoming embedded in the past. You're looking at the community, the sisterhood, the engagement with the land. And so what I'd really like to do is to take us forward a little way to build a vision of how the world could be if we were able to create that sense of connectedness to the land and to each other and to a a whole ancestry. Do you have any sense of a vision of how your world could be if you were able to bring together the community that it sounds like you're building.
1: Well, there's there's so many threads in there. I think what feels really important at this particular moment, in terms of coming out of our recent experiences in the world with our lockdowns, is that we're we 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 have a se- sense within us of being prepared for what's coming up ahead and gathering our energy, using this time to restore and repair,
2: Mm.
1: um, incubate. I I found it hard to have a concept of incubation until just the last few weeks. I felt that it was quite an incubation that is not chosen. It's hard to imagine how you can use that in creative and productive forward ways. And among the conversations I was having Especially with women, there was a sense that we were all floundering and no, no nobody could gather up momentum. Yes. So it didn't yes. feel like a positive incubation. But what I've come to feel in the last few weeks is that the incubation, although it's felt hollowed, has still been a waiting time for all of us. And there are so many things that maybe we will understand much more clearly later on about this period of time it's very hard isn't it when it's so recently in our laps it's hard to kind of get a perspective on it but it feels that it it's for, for for all of us in our different ways it will have presented a an incredible opportunity for us to reassess and recalibrate yeah. And be ready because we've got so much work to do. So it's like the yeah. pause before we're leaping and surging into whatever is required of us, and understanding that we have to meet the challenge. We don't have an option, not to meet the challenge.
0: Yes, and I'm so glad that you say it's felt strange because in a lot of my conversations, we have an elder group together, which is mostly women, but um, some men, and. And the men have felt much more gung-ho in a way and, and pretty much universally the women have felt scattered and there's mm. that sense of a wild winter where the winds are all blowing and the seeds are not lying and not setting yet and the land is, is churning mm. and we've felt exhausted. It's felt yeah. very, very tiring and it's, it's only again in the last, since the new moon actually, that I've begun to feel as if there's, as if the dust is settling. And, and we're beginning to set a route of some sort
1: yes and it, it is trusting that process that the that within this scattered empty hollowed time there is something you yeah. know, that without without us even being aware of it something that's being created in which we can gradually s- step into the the, the the flow of that and and see, see where it takes us i think what i was referring to earlier when we were talking about the young people coming here to the land. I, yes. I do. I do feel that that's hugely significant. As I've started into my seventh decade, I'm beginning to appreciate that this period of life is about, you know, having, having worked so hard to gather and bring together, and um, to to understand and increase perspective, and all of these things that you do when you're, you know, on, on your path. That this is a period of um, of, of giving out giving, really, right. a, a, as much as possible. And it's dependent on the generosity of the older generations in giving power and space and resource into the yes. hands and the visions and the dynamic of younger generations. And I, you know, we, the world has yet again <laughs> turned away from a different possibility and yet again it's in the control of aging men who draw power from inequality and strength from the struggle yes. of others. And so it's, it's up to us to enable, to bear witness and you know, us who've been working this journey for a long time and, and you know, moving into a different part of our lives, that we are bearing witness and holding energy for this younger collective voice to represent humanity. And, and we mustn't yes. hold on to things ourselves because it's dependent yeah. on us to keep allowing the flow, keep allowing it to move through yes. our fingers, really.
0: Yes, that giving of power and space and mm. resource. And, yeah, and being an elder circle for the younger generation seems to me, okay, now I sound like my grandmother. but um there's a an awakening, and yes, the old reactionary men hold the reins of the power that was. But it seems to me they don't hold any of the reins of the power that is coming. Mm. And increasingly that the governance is a hollow shell within which other things are growing, Mm. it feels to me. And that if we can nurture the shoots of a generation that seems to have liberated itself or been liberated from a lot of the strictures that we grew up with and has vision and a sense of connectivity that that being the internet generation gives i suppose that if we can then help them to connect to the land which is what you're doing then that becomes almost unstoppable i would i would like to think and so in your you've had four young people at home but i'm guessing they're connected to a much much wider network and that those four young people at home are deeply connected to your land. So, have you a sense now of building a community, either localised on your land or across the world, that is is having a sense of a vision of what they can do with the power and space and resource?
1: Well, you know, I think all of that's still in the the place of the dreaming and the, the you okay. know the place of anchoring. I I, I feel that. Right now, exactly at this moment in time, <laughs> it's quite hard to be um definite about any kind of concept of the future or plans for the future. I think what I've been feeling for myself that the most important thing is fluidity and being attentive, watching, watchful, and then seeing what unfolds. So it feels that like the potential mm. for you know for change for us here on this land. Is, is there, um, as well as for, for the, the way it is for in the much wider global context for for all of us. Um, but we don't quite know what that means yet. And I think yeah. all we can do is watch and listen and be attentive and keep being flexible, you know, really remember to be nifty on our feet so that we can turn on a penny and go into a different direction if that's right. what's being called for, to us. And, it, and it's odd, isn't it, that we talk about ancestry and ancient you know, ways of being on the land. And yet we're talking about this new, younger concept of how humanity is being represented. But it feels that there's this massive work of gathering the fragments and mending all the ripped pieces of human experience and Mm. to sew a new cloth together, which keeps, you know, which brings out all our treasured and ancient and forgotten truths. It does depend on this d- deep sense of our own root into something that is strong and timeless. And w- with that within us, we can do anything. I think it's when we get cut off from that, we're not able to yeah. link ourselves into the, um, the rich tapestry of wisdom and understanding and connectedness that we can draw from the land and from this sense of our ancient connection with it. Um, and that's what we can ride on.
0: And in your exploration of that, when I met you, you were exploring, I think I remember with Oxford University, the, the very ancient Proto-Gallic language that would have been in the lands of Britain before the Romans came, quite a long way before the Romans came. And we sang songs, I remember, in that language that that melted the marrow of my bones in ways nothing has ever done. It felt, yeah, it felt magical in its truest sense. And I wonder, have you continued that exploration? And could you speak some of that yeah, language for us? I'd
1: love to. I, I start, Actually, what it is, I, I started working with this language about four years ago. I uncovered it. Through the internet, it's um the University of Wales holds the lexicon of the it's proto-celtic, it's called or common Celtic, and it's a mother tongue that fed into the living Celtic languages that are still spoken today. So this roots into the Bronze Age four thousand years ago. And what I love about this language, which has been linguistically, archaeologically, reconstructed by stepping backwards from all the living Celtic languages with, with all the words that are the same. So they're obviously the mm. older root, root words and then okay. reconstructing this more ancient tongue. And p- people have been working on it for a long time, over a hundred years or more. Um, so th- there is a lexicon being held by the University of Wales. That's where I originally found it. Possibly there are others elsewhere um, and I love it because it came from Central Europe and all through North and Western Europe and then eventually onto these islands. So it's a very connecting language and it's mm-hmm. a language that can belong to all of us who feel that we want a language route into this landscape, into these ancient British islands. We want something to be able to represent the voice of people in whose footsteps we tread um and it and the first time i taught it was um for a gathering that was to welcome indigenous women from other parts of the world into a, a big a time of ceremony here in devon there were about 300 women there and i taught this uh, language as a song for the first time and it was so liberating i felt to witness the mm. women being able to have ancient words they could speak which had no history or contemporary subtleties attached yeah. to those words. It was purely from the earth and words that express the earth. And so we continued to work with it a great deal in that way because it's a bone language. It's a bone, a language that can be felt deep within the bones and links you straight into the ancient resonance of the landscape Mm. and that's Mm. why i love it so this is what it sounds like and i should say when i work with it just in case there's any linguists listening i create songs from it like beads on a necklace so i'm not bothering about plurals or tense or any kind of interconnecting words particularly i'm creating a necklace of words and that becomes the meaning of the song and the pronunciation I've done what fits my mouth. Right. So, you know, I feel there's a great liberation yes. in a Bronze Age language. You can, yes. <laughs> it can be what works for your own bones. So, this is how it is. I'm going to sing it actually, this bit, Mando. I'm going to sing this.
2: Thank
0: bit. you. Yes.
2: Come Ni sweati to ni Sunday wake. sago and sneejo sago and sneejo Come Sago and snee Come Sago and snee That means.
1: We remember all that we have spun, all that we have woven, path of needle to the cloth, the blanket and the braid. We remember the blanket and the braid. We remember all our wisdom.
0: Thank you. Thank you. When we do the transcript of this, if if you would be able to send me those words do you you have them yeah yeah i I can just send you the song
2: yeah that's that's
0: that would be fantastic that's (laughs) and and again and it it genuinely goes in at the level of bones it's it's an astonishing feeling i'm sure everyone listening to it felt it that it it sinks in to the ground of our being in a way that i have never experienced with any language at any time Mm. Oh, which is so beautiful that you're bringing it back.
1: On on that um, occasion, I was mentioning the first time I taught the women, as I was moving around this circle of of several hundred women teaching this song, ready for them to receive the the visiting women, I was um, teaching them a different song, actually, Noibo Nani, Sacred Grandmothers, Mm. Askuno Kajo, Our Sacred Bones. And as I was walking around teaching the song, so many women were crying because it felt that it did reach in to something they had forgotten about Mm
2: -hmm. and that
1: they were then able to remember by expressing it through the the language.
0: Right, right. And I'm thinking, because dreaming is one of our routes to connecting to who we really are, have you found that while working with this language, have you begun to dream in this language, I guess is where I'm going?
2: uh
1: no I I don't dream in this language no I don't um th- that's that's not how it comes to me I, I I we haven't touched on this but I I paint my journey I I've always done that right. and that's been so i i've painted the cycles of the workshop journeys i've painted my way into the books and all the teaching this has just been my my personal way of uh f- finding my path and then and then carrying it along into these other things so the language connects to the paintings and that has been a relationship i've noticed increasingly that when i'm connecting to the women that i'm painting they they are coming with this language and that's been very wonderful experience to to, experience, right. to see that happening.
2: Mm.
0: Yes, and we will put links in the show notes to your website where there are some of the depictions of the. They're amazing. Again, they're, your paintings, your art is something that sinks deep into something that feels very real and authentic and grounded and that breaks apart the strictures of our current reality, it seems to me. So I could see how the language and that really links. And possibly we might be able to use some of that, your artwork in the um, on the podcast. We'll have a look at that. Um, so I'm aware that time is moving on and that you have another Zoom call coming up, as we all seem to. I don't know about you, but as soon as lockdown happened, my life became a series of Zoom calls every day (laughs) that all seemed incredibly important. I have managed to cut some of them down more recently. So threading through all of your work that you do on the land and that you've spoken of here is work specifically with women and for women and women of all ages. And you go to work with the women in the Sami lands and from the sound of things in Siberia as well. So can you tell us more about how that is for you, how you got to it and where you think it might go.
1: So I have been uh, working with women's work for over four decades, um, starting off as a young woman with activism, with feminism, women's politics, moving from that into a more um, spiritual approach in the landscape, so something quite, you know, revelatory happened when I suddenly was aware of the strong sense of sacred womanhood in the in the land, and that began a completely new direction um, of of relationship with women's power and women's potential and women's prayer, and that's unfolded over the years. Um, it started becoming more focused when I began to paint, which was when I was around about 28 years old. Mm. And I was then able to focus all of that feeling of this spirit within woman and within our womanhood into the work I was producing as the paintings. And it, it was chaotic to start with. I was just, you know, using household paint, daubing onto bits of chipboard, whatever I could do, just to get the feeling of it out. But I began to catch up with myself and to, to focus it more. And then and then thus the journey began. And I used to sing to my paintings. So as the years unfolded, um, once I started working with my partner, which was when I was about 31, 32, something like this, uh, I started to record the songs that came. So then it became a way of catching another aspect of women's spirituality into the music. And around Mm -hmm. that time, I started teaching women's workshops. And that's been a slow unfolding process. But that really started the first year we came here to the land. So right from the beginning, being on the land was a way of me being able to share something with women and to see what women were wanting from that experience so gradually the workshop
0: programme could evolve. And where is is the evolution taking it?
1: Well, for many years it was was based around the cycles of the paintings. So wherever those paintings were taking me, that's where I took the workshops. But for the last um, five years or so, I've been consciously creating a programme it's felt important to bring in all the threads and all the different uh, aspects of how we've worked here into something that uh, into a vessel that women can find uh, a place within that that feels right for them Mm -hmm. and for a long time it was my my aim was to go slowly so I tried to avoid creating hierarchy I really didn't want hierarchy to be part of this process Um, Mm -hmm. and I feel that we we're kind of getting there it's working we have a uh, it's called the braided river program and it's the imagery of water is really significant right. in it within it so we have lot long returning women who are the salmon sisters who return every season you know to keep on adding oh, to their work and then we have women being brought in through the hearth circles so the roundhouse holds the sanctuary place for them when they first put their feet into this kind of work uh, so gradually we've We've created and and consolidated, in a sense, a a fluid community. Um, And and I like the sense of it being fluid. I don't want it ever to feel like there's Mm. an organisation or a system or a club or anything like that. It needs to keep having this river flowing through it. So that's that's how
0: we've been working with it. Beautiful. And when was the Bronze Age woman found? That was quite a long way into your tenure on the land.
1: Yes, uh, she was... um, first discovered that her kissed ven on the top of the mall was being damaged that was probably around about 2012 something like this I might be slightly off with my dates but they, they had been keeping an eye on her kissed and they knew that there were some issues that they, they maybe would need to go and investigate to see if there was anything in there before the whole thing fell apart. And that's when they realised there was a... Mm.
0: So, so hang on, they knew the kist was there, but they didn't know who was in it.
1: Well, the policy has been on Dartmoor not to disturb or uncover any of the kists. That if there's a kist, it's left undisturbed. This one was getting mm. damaged by erosion and... Animal, you know, animals rubbing up against it and all that kind of thing. So they they thought that if there was something in it, they would do some rescue archaeology. And that's okay. when they found her bone bundle.
0: Wow. Wrapped in bearskin. Yes, wrapped in bearskin. Yeah. And what do we know about her?
1: We know that she was about twenty eight years old. Uh, We knew that we know that she was very well loved. Of course, in the the way that people like to attach hierarchy, she's had all sorts of names attached to her, such as the Tin Princess and all of this stuff. But I prefer to say that that the way that she was honored shows that she was loved and she was she had beautiful um, items carefully handmade that were within her within her burial bone bundle. And it was a very exquisite find and quite groundbreaking in terms of archaeological science. Things were found there that they didn't really have very good examples of before. So they know that she was part of a community for which tin was their wealth. So tin was being brought from the ground here on Dartmoor and it was being traded into the Mediterranean and that tin was being used as part of what you know, created bronze fueled the Bronze Age, so the right. tin the tin was really important.
0: And how long ago was she buried? Four thousand years ago. Four thousand years, mm-hmm. okay, wow. And the bare skin, was it? Every one of her bones, or had they selected? Had they put her out in a kind of a, a sky burial and then collected the bones afterwards? No,
1: she'd been cremated actually, so what what was left in the bundle were her burnt bones. Okay, but she had been cremated without her robe or her jewellery. So then the robe and the jewellery and all her possessions were placed in with her burnt bones. So they were intact when they had gone into the bundle, um, but her bones were were in in pieces burnt in there, and then everything wrapped around.
0: And those bones themselves, you said, are in in academic...
1: They're in the museum, yes, in a museum back room somewhere.
0: Mm. Gosh, but her energy is back in the Kist that we worked with back in 2014.
2: Yes. Interesting. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. And then and and you have bear energy on the land as well. I'm still completely in awe of that. So thank you. If we can envisage how the world would feel, not necessarily what it would look like, and definitely not how we get there. If we were to be able to step into a totally generative community where the needs of people and all life and all of the web of life were met then it's something we could begin to move towards because we have very many felt sense images and narratives of how things could go badly wrong we have none of what happens if it goes really wonderfully mm-hmm. right could we could we create a sense together of that do you suppose yes let's 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 talk about you that go. yeah. okay just as an introduction, I will, I've been doing this meditation since the start of lockdown. At the start of lockdown, I went up the hill, I said, what do you need of me? And they said, we need you to do this. What if we got it right? Without defining what right is, without defining how you got there. And I think I spent the first two lunar cycles of doing this every day and hitting up against my own internal energetic and emotional boundaries. My head was quite happy that this was a concept and i had no idea the extent to which internally i had internalized hopelessness and mm. despair mm. and everything is going to go very badly wrong and allowing that to soften under the gaze of just gentle inquiry yes okay i hear all of that but what if what if we didn't go down those roads what if we were able to create a really genuinely generative community, because everybody actually wants that sense of purpose and connection and commitment and contribution. And if we were able to harness that desire with the connectivity to the web of life, such that we had what you described, that sense of being able to turn in the moment as as An impulse comes in of we, the web, we need you to do this now. And we go, okay, we can do this. How does that feel? And what I got to was a sense of extraordinary liberation in the beginning. I didn't know how afraid I had been until I let that fear drop. And then connectivity arose. And more recently, a sense that I find quite hard to give words to of... of being in, in connected service, of of being fully open and free and of everything flowing through me such that I am the circuit board in the network where, where some things come in and flow out and I don't have to push them or pull them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I just am there. And it feels, I can't describe the sense of of liberation and of, of connection, of that sense of, that one gets when we're with a group, a tribe, and the tribe is all functioning, where everybody knows what their role is, because it's what they can do. And everybody, and you can trust everybody else to be what they need to be, such that I can be what I need to be, and everything flows. And it hasn't happened often in my life, but when it happens, it's the best possible feeling. And so more recently, I have occasionally, not for long, dropped into that place. So for me, that's the vision, is that sense of a global tribe of trust and connectivity and a sense of purpose that transcends anything that my head mind could generate. So I offer that as a starting point.
1: That's Over that's beautiful, Manda. That's a really beautiful flow of words. I I loved listening to what you were just saying. Okay, so, well, the first thing I, I would say is that all these decades I've been working with my focus being on women's experience in the world, and that would be for me the the first thing, a sense of such a balance in, in women's experience within the world experience that we no longer need to spend decades and decades working on uh, w- women's position in the world and bringing it into a place of equality and safety and equal mm. relationship. But we do need to do that at the moment. So it's, it's a work of great importance. But that would be my, my first sense that we we had such a balance that we've we're no longer needing that within our world experience the other thing in in terms of talking on the way uh to getting to that place i think we need to learn uh fierce tenderness in our guardianship of the world i think we're all understanding that increasingly with the, the the things that have been happening in recent years around climate disintegration we've all come to realize that our tenderness needs to be fierce that as we as we guard our boundaries as we guard this precious heart of our vision of of how we want our amended world to be that we can't be complacent or passive in that but but we need to retain the tenderness in that so fierce tenderness feels a significant part of our journey to to that place in terms of the vision itself I, I love the things you were saying. I love that sense that we can occasionally have a feel of what that is. And I think we probably do all um, step into those moments where it feels that everything is linked up and there's a pattern that feels right. And obviously within that is our relationship with the land and with the world, with nature. All of that has to be key to our ongoing survival and relationship with each other as well so that can only be for for me I I can I cannot imagine being able to stretch out my arms to hold more than the bit that is here and Mm. uh, when I've come to think about okay so step into these actions and move to support that and bear witness to these things in the street going on there whatever these things are but ultimately it always comes down to this is the job This is get this bit of this, the earth, just this little tiny bit, get it right, get it shared, get it working right, Mm. make it a sanctuary. And that will join up with all the other things that other people are doing. And that's how we do it. It can be done only in these, I feel, in these small small ways, and then suddenly, maybe we'll look around and go, oh, all the small things have joined up, and now it's massive. Uh, But the massive vision is very hard for our human minds and hearts to be able to hold (laughs) sometimes. uh, Well, for myself, I find that. So it's reaching out to the massive vision and then bringing it into a smaller focus and getting that bit
2: good.
0: Does does that make sense? If everybody did that, if everybody worked in their... Actual geographic spaces that they are to connect to the land where you are living, where we are living, and to create that sense of sacredness and the fierce tenderness that you spoke of that feels really beautiful and And then were to reach out to everyone else doing that, then there would be a whole. Mm.
1: but the sharing is important. i mean i, I just, this is, this might be going up a little alley you want to edit out, but I feel I've witnessed up on Dartmoor here during lockdown a sense of <laughs> guardianship of the land from people around who live here, but it's not been very tender in terms of other people's desperate need to come out and be in nature. And I do feel that the privilege of having the care of land, we have to remember it's it's a privilege and it's not ours by right. And we right. must share it. It's only being right. given to us to look after because we understand it must be shared and we uh, we, we have to keep doing that. Right. If we start holding on to it or, or creating more boundaries and divisions, um, it, it's it's not a good position and uh, I, I'm quite ashamed, yeah. ashamed of witnessing some of the things that have been happening in wild places where uh, other people have come at last to be able to take some refuge and have not been so easily welcomed. I think that this is key we, we have to share.
0: Right 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 yes and this is about finding everybody's needs needs rather than wants and being able to work out ways where they can be met in a way that is healing because it's also the case I saw some pictures of I think Bournemouth yesterday mm-hmm. where where they had to draft in extra police just to clear the gridlock mm-hmm. because Everybody had descended on mm. Portmouth Beach. And and I know our local little wild bit, Carding Mill Valley, a couple of weekends ago, a thousand cars were in a place that has space for fifty. Mm. And they came and it took the local people it's taken it must have been three weeks ago, because it's taken three weeks to clear up the rubbish that was left. And I and people do end up feeling protective because there is a need to connect with the land, but then the respect of the land isn't met.
1: And I guess that's and where we the fierce need to find that
0: balance also Yeah.
1: And that's where the fierce tenderness comes in. <laughs> in yes. holding in holding the sanctuary space. You know, these are the boundaries of the sanctuary. Yeah. You're yes. welcome, but <laughs> We're gonna seriously make it. sure it's
2: looked
0: after. Honour the land. It's yeah, not yeah, just there exactly. for you to yeah. crap all over and then leave your, your picnic tables mm. <laughs> because mm. you could not be bothered to carry them the ten yards back to the car. Um so yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one of that sense of being able to hold compassion for all sides of everything and to honour the needs of the land as much as the people mm. who need to be there. And and people who don't understand that the land can be honoured or how to do it. There's a lot of education needed. And I don't quite know how we how that happens other than modelling it in a way that is felt and doesn't come across as hectoring or evangelising or, or just telling people what to do, which doesn't work. So that's probably a whole other podcast. <laughs> so... So, yes, well, I thought we'd come to the end, but that was a whole interesting bit. I do on, have another me. song that yes, actually I know. I about is, is about this, really. It. It's
1: about our relationship with the land. And it. I suppose, for mm. me, it might be a more succinct you know, su- summing up of why I do what I do, if that would be useful
0: to you. That would be so beautiful. Okay. Yes, thank you.
1: Well, first of all, thank you, Amanda, so much for inviting me and and Bic for being part of this. I've really appreciated being on your podcast. Thank you.
2: It's an honour. Thank you. We are thorn when we crouch upon the hill, so bleak, so still, so cold. Our roots run down in the ragged rocks. So deep, so hard, so old. We croon beneath the half moon as she waxes through to full. We are born from the hollow, smooth and dark, that formed this ancient hill. We are willow when we sit beside the stream. So far, so chill, so keen We spread our limbs on the mossy bank So soft, so quiet, so green We sing beneath the pale sun As she rises through the dawn We are born from the waters wild and free That carved this ancient moor We are oak when we stand within the night so black, so full, so wide. Our arms stretch high in the sparkling air so sweet, so far, so bright. We dance beneath the stars that slowly turn the world around. We are born from the storms and the rolling winds that shape this ancient land. We are fire when we sit beside this hearth, so fierce, so kind, so raw. We drum our path through the heron's marsh, so strong, so clear, so sure. We sing around these embers, as they warm our sacred home. We are born from the soul of our mother's songs that fill our ancient bones. We are born from the soul of our people's songs that fill our ancient
0: bones. So that's it for another week. Enormous thanks to Carolyn for her wisdom and connectedness and the fierce tenderness of her care of the land and for the truly bone-melting beauty of her songs. For those of you who want to hear more of them or to find out about the courses she runs, there's a link to her website in the show notes, which are on the podcast page of our website at accidentalgods.life. There will be a transcript of the interview there as well, together with transcripts of all of the other podcasts. And we will be back next week with another conversation looking into how the future could be different if we choose to connect with the land, with each other, with our sense of the sacred. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tilleray for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods, and for designing the website. If you want to see the beauty and the wonder of what she's created, that address again is accidentalgods.life, and you'll find the show notes, the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations that we put in the Pandemic Resources section, that will sometime soon be just the Resources section, I think. And there's the Accidental God's Membership Programme, the portal which is a structured training to give everyone the opportunity and the means to connect with the web of life with integrity and authenticity and genuine groundedness. So if you know of anybody who would like to be part of the fierce tenderness and the care of the land that will take us forward, then do send them the link. In the meantime, that is it for now. See you next week. Thank you, and goodbye.